Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hi, this is Steve. 1993 was a great year for movies. I mean, listen to this list. The Fugitive, Groundhog Day, Nightmare Before Christmas, The Piano, Philadelphia, True Romance, In the Name of the Father, In the Line of Fire, Mrs. Doubtfire, Tombstone, Carlito's Way, Searching for Bobby Fischer, and The Remains of the Day. Now that's a lot of great movies. But for Steven Spielberg, 1993 was a career-defining year. Most filmmakers would be thrilled to make just one great movie in their whole career. Spielberg made two in one year. The incredibly powerful Schindler's List and one of the greatest popcorn movies of all time, the thrilling and groundbreaking Jurassic Park. Now, I know we're going to tackle Schindler's List at some point on the cinephiles, but this week, we're digging into an adventure 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park is as exciting, awe-inspiring, and terrifying as it was when it first hit the big screens 25 years ago. And helping us on our journey into the world of the dinosaurs is our special guest and Jurassic Park expert, Perry Nemiroff. Perry is a fantastic critic and pundit whose work you can see on Collider, as well as her very own YouTube channel. And we had so much fun talking with her on The Cinephiles. So, if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, you are in for a treat. Just visit cinephiles.net, where you can stream or buy the film along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. That's Jurassic Park, part one, because one episode simply couldn't contain it, with special guest Perry Nemiroff, this Friday on The Cinephiles. Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sattler, welcome to Jurassic Park. Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, pundit, writer, producer, host on Collider Video, and a number of other things, including the Top Ten Show. Uh, and I can't believe that we are going to talk about this movie, finally, that has been at times, a source of contention between me and at least this franchise has been the source of contention between me and our guest for quite some time. We have a running gag about it all the time on Movie Talk, so I am quite looking forward to having to this episode. Um, well, you want you you've hinted that we have a guest. Do you <laughs> want to say who oh, that sure, guest might be? Absolutely. Our guest for this episode is someone who um, I revere very much as a movie critic, as an analyst, as a pundit. She is a box office queen um, that a lot of people know her for. She has a very strong following, has her own channel. It, she doesn't do enough work at Collider that she has to have her own channel to review films and talk about stuff. You know her as the proud mom of Dewey the Cat and um, a massive fan of Diet Cokes as well. 
uh, and a massive fan of this franchise, uh, the lovely, very talented, and incredibly intelligent Perry Nemerol. That was mighty kind, Roka. I feel like I need to clip this out and play that at the beginning of every single one of my videos now. You did before we started ask for a good introduction. I did, I did. I, I've got very delivered. high standards when it comes to Roka. <laughs> <laughs> she does. It, trust me, she does. Um, welcome to the Cinephiles. We've been talking about having you on for a long time. Yeah. And I think since the beginning, we've been talking about this film, mm -hmm. which is Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. This is my favorite movie of all time. This is time. number one. This is number one of all time, hands wow. down, no contest. Do you remember how you first came to it? I do. I vividly remember my first time watching Jurassic Park. I was, I guess I, I was like six or seven at the time. Sure. I think I was six. And I went to the theater with my parents, my little sister, who would have been closer to maybe four and two older cousins. And we sit down and I was just, it was magic on the screen from the wow. second it started. And what I vividly remember is the second the T-Rex breaks out of its paddock, all of a sudden my little sister gets up and she leaves. Yeah. <laughs> and then my dad gets up and he follows her. And the rest of the movie I kept watching, but I kept turning around. And they don't really have this anymore. But you remember when they had those little like rectangular windows in the back that you could kind of see through and see oh, the screen? Sure. He was holding her up and she was looking through the window at the screen the rest of the time. But yeah, after after that day, that was kind of it for me. That was the first time I really processed movie magic too. And just yeah. the idea of being transported into something that, you know, is is kind of surreal and I was addicted to that feeling. What a great introduction to that. I mean, I mean particularly cuz, you know, you talk about movie magic, who better to talk talk about than Steven Spielberg? I mean, he is the master magician. Um, John, do you remember how you first came to it? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I was considerably older than Perry. <laughs> I think I was 24 when I saw this thing in the summer, I think, of 95, right? Some, 93. 93. 93. Oh, sorry. So then maybe I was 22. Uh, I'm sure it was on some kind of uh, break from the military that I'd come home to see it with probably my family. This was like right at the tail end where we would go as a group to go see movies. This is right at that tail end where all, like, you know, when you're getting that age where you don't go as a whole family anymore. And I think this is one of those last ones where we went to see together. And I remember enjoying the film very much and having a great time. And it's right when Spielberg is at his, like, you know, at the top of his game and doing the things that he's doing and had been building for quite some time. And you enter into the 90s. And I just remember enjoying this film very much and the, the uh, special effects are the things that I was really blown away by, how believable the dinosaurs were. And, of course, I was starting to get into independent films, so I knew who Sam Neill was. I, I knew who Laura Dern was from Rambling Rose and other stuff that she had done. I think there were other ones. Like she did that film with Treat Williams uh, mm -hmm. uh, that was the Bob, William, uh, Bob Dylan song uh, that she had. So there was other things that I'd seen them in. And then... You know, you throw in Samuel L. Jackson, who was just starting to, and then just course, the beginning for him, right? And yeah. Wayne Knight, who oh, I think was like just starting to Seinfeld, or maybe it was before Seinfeld. It's, it's right around that time. I think Seinfeld has started. Yeah, it started. Yeah, no, so, Seinfeld's definitely. So I've going seen it. Yeah. yeah. So all of that, and then of course, Sir Richard Attenborough, who is one of my favorite actors and favorite directors, uh, and directors yeah. as well. You know, because he did Gandhi, and uh, he was in the, uh, the Great Escape. So all of these were just like it was great to see. And of course, once again, here's Spielberg using a director like he did Truffaut in Close Encounters. Oh, what a great point! I yeah, hadn't yeah. thought about that. So it's just that kind of thing. He has likes reverence. So everything about it was a great action adventure movie. Perfect summer movie. So I remember that. 
Yeah, so for me, I was uh, working in Berkeley at the time. It's that time where I'm trying to break in as a comic book writer. And I remember going to see it at the UA Theater on Shattuck Avenue with all of my friends mm. and just being totally, totally blown away by it. I just, you know, because I'm a huge Spielberg fan yeah. from, you know, from for me, it starts probably with Raiders, but Raiders mm. and E.T. and Close Encounters and all those movies. And, and at that point... This movie was so, so groundbreaking and so thrilling, and it went into that VHS rotation of oh, something yeah. that I rented, and then I owned it on VHS. I might have owned it on Laserdisc. I know I owned it on DVD. I watched it a lot, but then I don't think I had watched it in a long time until I watched it again about a year ago, mm. and then watched it again a couple of times in the last week, and you know, it's really funny. I always loved the movie, yeah, but I don't think I gave this film enough credit. I think I thought this is Spielberg at his best sort of popcorn movie, and I just didn't study the craftsmanship as much as I have now. I think this is just an amazing movie. Yeah. Um, I'll talk a little bit about how this whole thing started. The first thing that I found out is that the very first toy that Steven Spielberg remembers from his childhood is a dinosaur. Oh. And I was thinking about we had done Close Encounters with Scott Mance, and there's the story that he tells in Close Encounters where his dad wakes him up in the middle of the night and takes him out to look at the stars. Right. And that has this profound effect on him and this sense of wonder about could there be something out there? And that sense of wonder leads to Close Encounters. And now I think about that first little dinosaur toy. <laughs> and obviously that was special to him. And it's funny. Dinosaurs are special to a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. Were they special? Were you big dinosaur fans as kids? Shockingly, no. And because this is my favorite movie of all time, everybody always asks me that. Are you in? Are you into the science? Do you know all the dinosaur stuff? And I was never into it as a kid except through Jurassic Park. I think any interest I ever had was specifically through this movie. But even after the movie, it's not like I went out and got it's books or anything. All I basically did was take this VHS tape and play it over and over <laughs> and over again. And also I had to have... Every single Jurassic Park toy you could possibly imagine. Nice. Wow. Yeah, for, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about it in a long time, but if you asked four to seven or eight-year-old Steve, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said a paleontologist. You knew how to say that at seven or eight years old? I did. And I had a so, book that was called All About Dinosaurs, which I read over and over yeah. and over again. And I went and took uh, little kid dinosaur classes at College of Marin. As a little kid, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. Yeah, I had the same experience. I was obsessed as well. Read them like as a, as a kid growing up, but way before Jurassic Park, obviously, like growing up reading about dinosaurs. I was fascinated. Brontosaurus, tr Triceratops, you know, all oh, yeah. the different kinds. But I did know how many there were that I didn't know that are sure. in this movie. And like even the raptors, the idea of the raptors, I'd never thought to I, see yeah. the raptors. But I was always obsessed with T-Rexes. T-Rexes were massive for me. That and brontosauruses. Those Absolutely. were my two favorite uh, 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 dinosaurs always. And so living in Virginia slash Washington, D.C., going down to the Natural History Museum to see, yeah. I could do that any weekend I wanted to go. And when as I got older and was able to drive, I would occasionally go down, spend a whole day walking uh, the Smithsonian Museum's with a couple of friends and seeing all the historical stuff that was fun. And dinosaurs was always like the number one yeah. spot just to see what was new. You know, I think, and I mean, kids that aren't like, you don't see that huge skeleton and they don't go, wow. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine what's going on with that kid. Yeah. Um, so Spielberg obviously knows Crichton and they're talking about some other projects. And then he kind of goes, hey, what are you working on now? And Crichton says, oh, I'm working on this dinosaur book. And I think Spielberg right then goes, dinosaur book. <laughs> What do you mean? And he and Crichton doesn't like to talk about his work until it comes out. And Spielberg forced him, like, no, no, tell me what this is. He tells him what the story is. Spielberg gets an advanced copy of the book, and then he does something which he's never done before, which is he starts storyboarding from the novel. Wow. 
I never heard of anyone doing this. He was so excited about it. He starts storyboarding for the novel. And of course, the big question is, how is he going to pull off the dinosaurs? That's the that's the real problem. Right. How are we going to do it? And the, they, they put a lot of time and thought into it because he wanted these to be the best creatures that had ever been seen. And the key to it is real natural movement. He wanted the the item the animals to move smoothly. He wanted them to breathe. He wanted realistic skin textures. He wanted them to have the right effects on the out, on the real world in terms of weight and power. And that's really, really hard to do. And what's interesting is they ended up not doing it at all the way they planned to do it. Mm. And I'm going to hold off on talking about that until we can see some dinosaurs. Well, it makes sense, Steve, to be worried about that, too, because we had grown up with, like, the Ray Harryhausen stuff and, you mm-hmm. know, like King Kong and, like, the original 1933 where you see what how that ape – and that – it still holds up how King Kong kind of – even though it's fast, it's still kind of – it's still ferocious to look at and well done. And his battles in the movie and the Harryhausen stuff, 1 million world BC or 1 million BC, those kinds of movies. Right, Clash so, of the Titans and Clash, Seven Voyages right? so Sinbad. There were there – were there were um, dinosaurs or large creatures in those movies, and that's what we were used to. But Stephen wanted something more real that you could feel yep. tangibly was uh, authentic. Well, and remember, one of his most famous films had this animal in it that barely worked. Yeah, fair point. And so he you know, knew <laughs> what it was going to be like if this wasn't going to go the way he wanted. Right. And the truth is, I think there is tremendous connections between this movie and Jaws. Oh. I think there are all these lessons that he learned from Jaws that we see applied from a masterful maker in this film. I think uh, it's this, Jaws, and E.T. Because it's all about oh. that reach out and touch it kind of feeling. And yeah, in, in E.T., it was about the interaction between the human characters and this alien creature. And right. That's a big reason why Jurassic Park holds up so many years later. And we don't have that anymore. It's like mm-hmm. we're constantly arguing about the the newer Jurassic films. Right. And, you know, I understand why. And even though I love it and love that franchise, and really it doesn't matter what kind of movie you give me, if you put me back in that world, I am going to like it to a degree just mm-hmm. because I have so much history with this franchise. But as good as some of those digital effects look, I think it's almost lost that reach out and touch it feeling that you got from that original movie. I think uh, uh, Lost World has it a little bit, Mm -hmm. but the newer ones, not quite as much. Well, because I think E.T. is a great thing to bring up because there is an emotional component of wonder Mm -hmm. and joy and uh, and awe that Spielberg is the master of and and that those other films, they don't have that, Mm -hmm. you know. uh, casting is really important in this film. He wanted Richard Attenborough from the beginning. Yeah, uh, He just you know, saw this character as this man. And one of the things that's interesting is he saw a connection between the John Hammond character and Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm-hmm. Um, because Which is what we're going to do. Absolutely. Yeah. We definitely have to. And, and because of the Alec Guinness's character being obsessed with something and taking it much too far. Yeah. And also this thing of you really liking the Alec Guinness character at the beginning and still kind of going, wait, 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 what exactly is happening? Yeah. And for the rest of the cast, he went to Janet Hershenson and Jane Jenkins, who are fantastic casting directors. And what Spielberg wanted was he didn't want movie stars. Yeah. And so he goes to people who are coming kind of out of independent films. And that's Sam Neill and Laura Dern, who I adore. I love Laura Dern and everything she's ever done. Mm-hmm. She's just fantastic. And Sam Neill, like even just like in Hunt for Red October, I oh, love yeah. Sam Neill. Yeah. So good. But of course, the biggest discovery, I think, is Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. And, and what's funny is apparently written into the script, and I can't remember from the book, is that he's more of just a nerdy scientist mm-hmm. type. 
And Jeff Goldblum comes in with something completely different. Yeah, not a surprise. It's interesting reading the book, reading the book after I saw the movie, because that was one character where I could never get Jeff Goldblum out of my mind. I think even though the character reads differently, I was always picturing him, whereas I can see other glaring differences between book and film. Oh, yeah. There are huge ones. Yeah, that's a really good point. Once you got Jeff Goldblum. He's stuck in. Oh there. my God! Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and this is the beginning of Goldblum doing having this kind of reputation for creating these kind of outlandishly crazy characters that he still does. If you watch Thor as recently as Thor Ragnarok, right, right, he's still doing what these like very interesting. Nineteen eighty six. So, yeah. so the flies before this. Yeah, flies great. Yeah, God damn, that's he's great in it. Yep, he's really good. There are a few release dates I know, and there are the, the, <laughs> that's one of them because I love that movie so much. I haven't seen it in forever. Really, it's been a really oh long time. Probably, it's so probably twenty years since I've seen it. I, I wore out the VHS copy, then I. Copied it off the television and wore out that one. I love that movie so much. Both of them are so good. That one and the original one. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, which, the Vincent Price. Which yeah. is strangely enough directed by James Clavell. Oh. I think one of the weirdest, the, the writer of Shogun. What? And King Rat and Noble House directed The Fly. He also is the screenwriter for uh, The Great Escape. Oh, wow. Which is another movie I love and would love to do. With, which Attenborough's in. Which Attenborough's in. Yeah. Um, uh, so originally they were going to shoot in Costa Rica, but there really wasn't the infrastructure they needed. So they decided to shoot on Kauai and uh, they start building it. And of course, they have to build an entire amusement park, which is a huge, huge production design problem. Rick Carter is the PD. He studied Disneyland, studied Disney World, really to figure out how it works. And just as they've gotten everything built, they've started shooting. In comes Hurricane Iniki, and it is a big, powerful storm. It comes straight out. Apparently, the the center of the storm was right at the hotel. The eye of the hurricane went over the hotel. And during this hurricane, everyone, the cast, the crew, the staff of the hotel, all the guests are huddled in the main ballroom listening to 185-mile-an-hour gusts of wind batter the building. It was really loud, really scary, and Richard Attenborough slept through the whole thing. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. When you're old, you can sleep through a lot of things. Let me tell you. <laughs> and when they woke him up, they said, oh my God, you, how did you sleep through that? And he said, I lived through the blitz. Yeah. What are you going to say to that? Yeah, nothing. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, their sets are ruined. Uh, You know, they've got to start building that all over. But really, the whole area is really devastated. And so they have this crew, which is, you know, movie crews are incredibly skilled, incredibly resourceful, know how to build things really fast. And the first thing they start working on is helping the community get back on its feet. And the cast pitches in and the production staff pitches in. And what Laura Dern says is this really bonded them as a group. So even though it was a terrible thing to have happen in the movie set, in a lot of ways, maybe it helped the movie. And they all got paid to do it. Fair Extra point. for staying on the situation. That's right? a fair point. And I've been, I've been down in Kauai, obviously, uh, um, to, to interview The Rock for the Jumanji stuff and being down there. All the signs are still up there in the places where they shot. And it's always fun to go. And I bet that's a big reason why. Sure. Because that community loves and respects what they did. Oh, yeah. And the Hawaiian community is a very powerful community. You know, it goes generations deep bone deep in and if you help the people they revere you for that because they and i think that's probably why they have all that stuff up there i need to get there for a visit you got it i can't believe i haven't seen all that stuff i was in hawaii once when i was like too tiny to remember it Uh, but the point is that was also before jurassic park i need to get there to see all the setups they have because i know if you go on any of those universal trips now they take you there and you do the atv trip which you ride you ride the three-wheel atv (laughs) all over the muddy thing and it rained while we were there so we were able to go, and they have dinosaur bones out that you can <laughs> ride up on. This is my kind of yeah, activity. You gotta next time they send you gotta go because it's such a blast That's to awesome. do it. Yeah. 
Uh, would you like to get into the movie? Let's do oh, it. Oh, yeah. Uh, we start with the Universal logo. We hear the sound not of the Universal theme, but of jungle sounds and <laughs> birds. And we hear that great John Williams score coming in. And we're in the jungle, and we see something moving through the trees. And, of course, as an audience, you know this is the dinosaur movie, so you assume this must be a big dinosaur. But it's not. It's a misdirection because what comes out of the trees is a forklift. And held in that forklift is carrying a huge metal box. And we have a whole bunch of guys wearing helmets and uniforms and they got guns. And whatever is being moved in that big box is really, really serious and really, really scary. And there's one guy who seems to be in charge. He's kind of dressed like a hunter. And he is this Muldoon. And he is giving the orders. And they clearly have a system of how they're supposed to put this thing in. Okay, pushing. Team, move in there. Move it. They move that, that box towards this cage. You have the first team, which comes in to unlock it. And then after uh, that's happened, the lights switch, and they say, okay, loading team, step away. Well up, loading team, step away. And they call in the gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper climbs up on top of that thing. He starts to open up the gate. We see the Raptor POV through the gate looking up at it. Joffrey, raise the gate. The gate comes up. The raptor charges, knocks the whole thing backwards. Gatekeeper falls in, and this moment is really, really scary. His body is halfway in, halfway out. Our hunter has grabbed him, is holding on to him. There's basically a panic among all these guards. As he calls to them, they're electrocuting this animal. And the fear and the screaming from the gatekeeper uh, at this moment is absolutely terrifying. And then he gets pulled up in the air, which, of course, is some guys behind this box lifting him up and down. But he seems to move. You can tell the power of the animal based on the reactions we're seeing from the gatekeeper. And finally, the hunter yells out, which is just a fantastic moment, but it doesn't work. And slowly, slowly, the gatekeeper slips through our hunter's arms and disappears into the cage. Such a crushing opening. Really? I is. feel like the second this movie started, my poor parents probably looked at each other and <laughs> said, Why did we bring How our old teeny tiny? I, I think I think considering it came out in the summer of ninety three, I must have been six, not yet seven. Yeah. Um, but I was instantly sold thanks wow. to this opening here. And it's just it's crushing. It's so crushing when you look at the actor who plays Joffrey's face the entire time, you could feel the pain that he's going through because you haven't even seen the raptor you don't see any blood anything like that it all needs to read on his face and it does and the de the decision too to have his hand slip out of Muldoon's yeah. arm at the end in slow motion and then fade to the next scene yeah. I feel like that decision also makes it even more upsetting well and, and this to me is the, this connection between this movie mm -hmm. and Jaws mm -hmm. because this to me is Chrissy going swimming yeah. is that you have this really really scary moment at the right at the beginning of the film with characters you don't really know with an unseen and that's really the key to me is an unseen monster is that with Chrissy it's just the dark and it's her reactions and her screams that make it so scary and then she gets just pulled in and yeah. disappears and that's exactly what happens to our gatekeeper well and also like if Muldoon is basically Quentin to a degree um oh yeah sure. that that shot of 
uh, the hand going through is very reminiscent of Scheider being unable to hold on to Quint as he gets as he oh, falls yeah. into the shark's mouth in that That's sequence a great point at too. the end. So that there's the same director shooting, you know, kind of having some homages maybe to because the opening is absolutely the same opening as Jaws in a different format. Well, I think it's really important because or although this is going to be a movie about some dinosaur action and mm-hmm. being scared of the scary dinosaurs, we're not going to get to those for yeah. a really, really yeah. long time. Yeah. And so we need to kind of tell the audience. Don't worry. The exciting stuff is coming. Hang on. And that's what we do right at the beginning is this incredibly thrilling, incredibly scary moment. And then we cut to uh, a guy in a suit (laughs) riding up on a raft going up to this mine, which is uh, an amber mine. And he is looking for someone named John Hammond. And he is concerned about insurance and about safety. And there's got to be an inspection. And Hammond doesn't want the inspection. And we go into the mine. And what's so brilliant about this that Spielberg does is we're getting a huge exposition dump right Mm -hmm. now. And that's usually pretty boring in film. So what does he do? He puts us in a great setting with great camera work as we go, what exactly is happening in this mine? And what we see is they're pulling out amber. And slowly but surely, the camera moves in, and we see that inside the amber is a mosquito. Um, And we also hear about, for the first time, about someone named Dr. Grant. And Dr. Grant is the person who's going to have to inspect this park, whatever it is. And uh, the, the guy in the mine says, Because Grant's like me. He's a digger. Shout out to that actor, Miguel Sandoval. Such a great setup too, and it immediately shows you who Gennaro is too. Yeah, because like right. if you actually look up the translation of what they're saying, they're all picking on him the entire time. Oh, really? They're betting he's going to fall yeah. off the raft, and yep. it's it's also they don't even give you the translation of this either. But as he's uh, he's talking about what's in the in the amber, he basically says something like like this is going to make a lot of people happy. And if you don't go out of your way to look that up, you're not going to know. But you know it based on his. T- tone of voice, his expression, how excited they all are to find this piece. I mean, unless you speak Spanish, then you get it. (laughs) (laughs) I Googled it. I was curious. Sure. Um, And speaking of digging, let's head off to the dig. Yeah. We see uh, hands and brushes cleaning off this partially buried velociraptor skeleton as the students and Grant and Laura Dern are all trying to do this. Skeletons don't come that way in the ground. That's that's not how you find them. Nice, neat, and organized. It's a lot more difficult. Um, and this is where we meet Sam Neill and Laura Dern. And they're just fantastic in this movie. Um, and what we get very quickly is Sam Neill's a bit curmudgeonly. He doesn't like computers. They're doing some cool thing where they're shooting something into the ground and using sonar, which apparently discovers another perfectly assembled velociraptor skeleton. Um, as soon as Sam Neill puts his arm on the computer, the computer fritzes out. Yeah. And this, of course, is a running joke. And then he starts talking about the fact that that we've seen this evidence that velociraptors are like birds, that dinosaurs and birds are related. And this little kid thinks it looks like a giant turkey. Turkey, huh? Oh, no. What Sam Neill does to him, what Dr. Grant does to this kid is so horrible and so funny. I mean, he just comes at him. That's when the attack comes, not from the front, but from the side. The other two raptors, you didn't even know were there. And he slashes at you with this six-inch retractable claw, like a razor, on the middle toe. He doesn't bother to bite your jugular like a lion, say. No, no. He slashes at you here. Here. Oh, 
or maybe across the belly, spilling your intestines. The point is, you are alive when they stop to eat you. That's one of those things that will scar a child for life. And it's I think that might be one of my favorite speeches in the entire movie, one of my favorite uh, pieces of dialogue. And when you just look, it's the same thing as the Joffrey thing, where you only mainly think about the ensemble and all the famous faces, mm. but then you have all these supporting performances that are so key to selling certain moments. And here, that kid, as he's saying that speech, and you cut to that kid, and you could just see all that like snotty, bratty confidence <laughs> just stripped away as he starts to picture what happens when a raptor spills his intestines. And yeah. eats him while he's still alive. <laughs> Well, and the other thing that's happening, and again, this is this is good lessons for filmmakers out there. We're getting some exposition yeah. in a really entertaining scene. We're hearing that raptors, unlike T-Rexes, don't just see movement. We hear that they mm-hmm. attack in groups, that they come at you from the side, that they're intelligent. You know, all these things that are going to be really important later in the film, we're getting in this really entertaining moment. Which makes the kid, like, freeze. <laughs> the kid totally, yeah. totally So don't out. ever forget that. It's like, ha, ha. And, and he walks away with Laura Dern who's like, you know, if you wanted to scare him, you could have just pulled a gun. <laughs> and, and, and Grant's reaction is, you want to have one of those? And, she, and she's like, well, not that one. <laughs> but I do want one. And, and, and Grant's just like, well, kids smell. They do not Some sm- of them smell. Babies smell. They smell, they're noisy, and they're expensive. There Actually, go. All true. <laughs> Those are all accurate statements about kids. It's also a great window into this like subtle uh, thing that this is a relationship. We don't know. It's not overt. It's not no. presented, and it's great in that way. And you know, she clearly wants to have children with him. Mm-hmm. He does not want to have kids. So this has been a, a conversational. T- uh, there's just a familiarity about the way they address this topic that you know they've talked about it before. Their relationship is actually only said out loud, addressed out loud one time in the whole movie, yeah. and it's when Malcolm asks Grant, "Are you two, uh, <laughs> you know?" And he 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 doesn't really say like a resounding like, "Yes, we are together." He just goes, "Yeah, yeah," and like kind of brushes him off. Grant is a fascinating, curmudgeonly sort of character. Right. He he he's very much inside himself. He clearly is passionate about what he's passionate about. He's uncomfortable with a lot of things in normal world like computers and children and human relationships. And yet he does clearly have a deep relationship to the Laura Dern character, right. but it's subtle. Mm-hmm. And I also think there's no way they're in a relationship if she doesn't also do what he does. Right. There's no way they yeah, have a yeah, relationship. She, yep. he, he that is, is like, a great point. Yeah, he, he is his own person and only is interested in this. If you're interested too, then I will love you by proxy. And just as they're sort of talking about kids and stuff, a helicopter comes up, <laughs> which makes all hell break loose because now there's dust and dirt going over. Well, we have to cover this very, very delicate dig. There's a bit of a panic to get this taken care of. Grant runs to the helicopter, says, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down, and then turns to the trailer, heads over to the trailer, and inside the trailer – Already is John Hammond, Richard Attenborough, turning around and popping a bottle of champagne. What the hell do you think you're doing in here? Hey, we were saving that. But today, I guarantee it. <laughs> How exactly did he get into the trailer and out of the helicopter without anybody seeing him? He can move really fast with that amber cane. Yeah, I guess so. He's part raptor. <laughs> he, his care, I think the casting of Richard Attenborough is so brilliant. Because he's so likable yeah. in one sense. And this guy is such a, um entitled person, mm-hmm. self-obsessed kind of person. Yeah. 
just opening up someone's bottle of champagne, I have kind of a problem with. Um, <laughs> like, you should really ask before yeah. you go into someone's stuff. Not when you have something to celebrate like that. That's... And not, not when uh, you're the person funding their dig. Yeah, that is a fine point. And, and you it... can replace the bottle of champagne. That's true, with probably a much nicer one. Probably. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, both Grant and, and uh, Ellie, which is Laura Dern's character, are both kind of mad at him until they realize who this guy is. Yeah. And he just rolls right into a spiel. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. I've leased it from the government and I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. Really spectacular, spared no expense. He is one of those people who, who's very passionate mm -hmm. and is clearly used to other people getting swept up in his passion. Mm -hmm. um, and right now his passion is about this park mm -hmm. and he just needs them to come for a few days down to his island off of Costa Rica to sign off on the thing. And if they do, he will fund their uh, dig for three more years. Yeah. You will do anything to make his dream come true. <laughs> Spare no expense, whatever it takes to make that park. And to be able to, it's not even just about him saying, oh, I finished the park. I created this park. He is so truly passionate about bringing that park and that spectacle to kids, yeah. to kids and their Absolutely. families. He, that is genuinely what he wants at his core. But he's a little... Uh, he kind of overlooks all the other things happening around him, yep. for better or worse, mm. in order to make that happen. Yep. Which, yep. you know, when you dream a really big thing, that's not unusual. There are a lot of people, whether it's Walt Disney or Steve Jobs or, uh, you know, Orson Welles, who mm. bruised a lot of people getting yeah. to, the, to the dream that they wanted to create. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Um, and, and I love, by the way, the reaction of uh, Laura Dern and Sam Neill when they hear that they're going to be funded and they're sort of taking that in and uh, okay and then giggling and then hugging and then toasting with the champagne. It's a great, great emotional moment. Uh, we're off to Costa Rica where we see Newman. <laughs> I really can't see him and not think Newman. Hello, Newman. Hello, Newman. Uh, and it's Wayne Knight who plays Dennis Nedry and he's at a restaurant and he's waiting for someone named Dodson and this guy shows up with a briefcase and he yells out, hey, Dodson. And the guy's a little nervous. Hey, keep it down. Keep it down. Keep it down. You shouldn't use my name. Dodson. Dodson. We've got Dodson here. See, nobody cares. <laughs> and what's happening is some industrial espionage. He's handing him a briefcase with $750,000. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Those uh, those embryos are worth quite a bit. Yeah. And they're talking about how – and he asks, well, how am I going to transport them? And out comes this shave, Barbasol shaving can. <laughs> Barbasol. It's the greatest idea ever. And it's, it's so iconic now too mm. where, you know, if you showed any movie fan out there a can of Barbasol – their mind would immediately go back to Jurassic Park. That's Probably why they more. make replica cans. That's why I have a little Barbasol can pin that has a magnetic thing that flips up and it shows the dino DNA inside of it. <laughs> it's such a smart move. Yep, like the Reese's Pieces. And we see that. Yeah, yeah, e we, yeah. We, And we not only do we see how it opens up and has these little compartments, but we also see 
It has real shaving cream. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Which... And then someone's going to eat that on a piece of pie. <laughs> so nasty. Poor person. And, and I love that Wayne Knight is just giddy laughing through this maniacally and this yeah. really through the whole thing until we get to the fact that you have only 36 hours to transport it. And suddenly he gets deadly serious and he's like, that's all on your guy in the boat. Yeah. I've timed it out. I need 18 minutes to get out. And when I do, if that boat's got to be there and if it's not, we're in trouble. So the second you take something out of his hands, he has that whole control room under mm. his own lock and key. He knows yeah. he can get that down to the second. Mm -hmm. The second it comes to somebody else doing something, he's in trouble. Well, and it's a he is a horrible person. Yes, he is. In almost every way. Oh, yeah. He is a mean, nasty Arrogant, gross, gross. His workspace is unacceptable. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I would lose it if I were in the room with that. So we're on a helicopter, and now we get to meet Jeff Goldblum, Doctor Ian Malcolm. So you two um dig up dig up dinosaurs? <laughs> he kills it in this movie. <laughs> he is so funny and so charming and so odd and so arrogant. Yeah, I, I love this character. His mannerisms and his laughs are just awesome. Yeah. They're only Goldblum. They're so Jeff Goldblum specific. I had the chance to interview him for uh, Independence Day Resurgence. Hey and before we even started talking about the movie, at one point we were just casually talking, and he did, did one of those laughs like, rah, rah, rah. and then I took it and I clipped it together with his laugh <laughs> in this scene. And I could just watch that on loop. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, and I love I love uh, Hammond's line about him is that you'll have to get used to Doctor Malcolm. He suffers from a deplorable excess of personality. Well, and it's a fun window into him as a as an actor. Like just all the touching of Richard Attenborough's knee. Like who knows how much of that he cleared before he did? Because it looked like he didn't. Because uh, Attenborough's like, what did I tell you about this and touching and do the things you're doing? And he's like, ah, uh, doing all the things that he's doing. And everyone seems this close to cracking up when he's doing what he's doing. Because they're probably just watching this guy do something that they instinctually don't know how to do. And in this quite interestingly charming yet slightly offensive, but not really offensive because it's Goldblum doing it kind of way. He walks that line so eloquently. And then uh, to have uh, uh, um, uh, what's his face, uh, Attenborough's character say to the lawyer, like, you you brought the rock star. I brought the scientists. You brought the rock star. And even Trevor's like, what? What are you talking about? I didn't hire this guy. So it's interesting how this whole relationship goes. Well, about we're going to see all sorts of interesting dynamics between Malcolm Alan Grant yeah. and Ellie, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, because he's immediately kind of flirting with Ellie yeah. with his chaos theory, smooth that bullshit. Dr. Sadler, I'd be uh, surprised if you weren't familiar with the idea of attraction or yeah. something, something like that. Oh, <laughs> so smarmy and so funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Does he bring up the flapping of the wings in this one? The beautiful, or is that later on? The butterfly wings and I think that's oh, later. That's, that's it's later. later okay, okay, later. That's later on. Um, and we hear that we're coming in on the island and we're going to get a little bit bumpy. And everyone's putting on their seatbelts. And <laughs> Sam Neil goes to put on his, and he has two females. It's such a smart story element too, because it's clearly mirroring the fact that all the dinos in the park should be female. Oh, ah, yeah. Shit. Yes, that's great. I hadn't thought about that. Um, and of course, what his final solution is, because he's an old school guy. Just tie the seatbelts together. You do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. We land. Beautiful shot as it comes down with the music in front of the helicopter. We get out. 
Hammond takes Ellie and Alan arm in arm, and we head off on the Jeeps. And, and, and of course, first thing we do is we go through this huge gate. It says 10,000 volts, which is, again, perfect Spielberg storytelling. And the insurance guy's doing what his job is, which is we got to check out what's the security here. And Hammond just tells him, you know, you should relax. Let's get something straight, John. This is not a weekend excursion. This is a serious investigation of the stability of the island. Your investors, whom I represent, are deeply concerned. 48 hours from now, if they're not convinced, I'm not convinced. I shut you down, John. <laughs> In 48 hours, I'll be accepting your apologies. So here's the thing about filmmaking, which is that a lot of times the movie that happens, the, the, the story itself is unexpected. So you have characters that are going to go into a situation expecting one thing and then they're going to meet the monster, the bad guy, whatever. So you're going to go to go to the Christmas party at your wife who you're having marital problems with building in Los Angeles and you don't know that terrorists are going to come take over the building. <laughs> and so – but the thing about it is is that in really great movies, you need to be involved in the story that they think is going to happen before the other thing has happened. And in Die Hard, we are. We're totally involved. Involved in John McClane and his wife and her boss and the guy, the coke doing guy who's kind of an asshole. And we're really interested in that. And if that movie continued, it would actually still be an interesting film. That is, this is the best example I can think of, which is setting up all these things about insurance and security and signing off and toys and evolution and flirting and the conflicts about science and all this stuff is fascinating and we're going to stick with it for a really long time. That's the genius idea about, you know, uh, Michael Crichton's book too. It's He's creating a theme park that we would all genuinely want to attend and we get the luxury at the beginning of Jurassic Park the movie to be able to, to see and, and get the impression that we could reach out and touch all these things that we would want to see should this park exist in the real world and then Clearly, it doesn't pan out that way. Well, and speaking of which, that's where we're about to go because we are about to have our first sight of a real dinosaur. Mm. I think this scene is remarkable. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the best scenes in any movie I can think of. And every time I see it, it makes me cry. It is wow. so it is so moving to me. Really? We're driving in, and first thing that's happening is Ellie's kind of distracted by a, a leaf that shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be here. And then you see Alan Grant stand up in the Jeep. We hear the rise of the music, and he reaches up to take his glasses off and kind of stumbles with it a little bit. And you see his face, and then you see him reach down and turn Laura Dern's head, and we see her reaction. And then we see it for the first time, the dinosaurs. Is just an amazing film moment. It's, it's a dinosaur. Uh -huh. <laughs> it is so well done. And on multiple watches, it's so interesting too because you know what their faces look like. The way you describe it, that moment is just so iconic. Mm. Then when you watch it again and you look at other people like like Gennaro and even, even Malcolm. I find Malcolm to be one of the oh, most interesting great. people to focus mm. on in that moment because he's, he's basically the non-believer. He's right. the one not rooting for the park most of the way through. But even in that moment when he gets his first sight of a real dinosaur, he can't even help but to smile. You did. You crazy son of a bitch. You did. 
this is the wonder of it. I mean, this is that thing that Spielberg saw looking up at the stars as a little kid. This is the moment of playing with the dinosaur toy. Mm-hmm. This is this is just reaching out and touching E.T. This is this thing that Spielberg does better than anybody else in the world, which is the the joy, the wonder, the childlike experience of seeing the magical thing. I mean, it is an amazing filmic moment. And you see Grant and uh, Ellie kind of stumble out of the Jeep mm. and move towards the giant Brachiosaurus. And the camera angle moves low below them. And the, the, the dinosaur rears up and comes down. And its feet hit, shaking the world right on the downbeat of the music. It is just perfect, perfect filmmaking. And, of course, our, our insurance guys, our lawyers going... We're going to make a fortune with this place. I wish I had the beauty that you guys feel. Like, I, I think it's a fun moment, but I don't ever get like emotional. Oh, yeah. No, I oh, get I get chills me. every single wow. That That is okay. one of my favorite scenes of all time. Mm-hmm. I've done the task of trying to rank my favorite scenes in Jurassic Park, and that's actually not my favorite, but it's up there. It is an amazing scene. It's a great scene. And, 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 now, and now Alan's starting to ask questions like, how fast are they? Mm-hmm. And they say, oh, well, we tracked the, the T-Rex at 45 miles an hour. What? Yeah. 32 miles an hour, I believe. Oh. oh. All right. I, I, I defer <laughs> yeah, to you. You have to defer it. She's seen it seven times. You are the times. expert. Um, and and uh, well, That's a good showdown question. Uh, it, it was on there. It's either 32 or 36. Okay. Well, we clocked the T-Rex to 32 miles an hour. And then and I love, too, that Grant, he started to hyperventilate. Yeah. No. Because this is his life's work. I mean, can you imagine you spend your whole time from childhood on, you know that he loved dinosaurs as a kid, speculating and thinking about these things. And now here they are. The real things are right in front of you. And as, as he kind of puts his head down between his knees, Hammond walks forward and the music rises and he says, Welcome to Jurassic Park. great delivery of the line Jurassic, Jurassic Park. perfect and they sit down and watch and we and, and we kind of hear oh they're moving in herds which you know reinforces I think one of his theories and Hammond kneels down next to him um, and you could see his love for this place and his love in their experience of it this is why he did this yeah you know he wants kids and all sorts mm-hmm. of people to have this experience and Grant asks how'd you do this It struck me as I was watching the movie this time, this whole sequence, we get right into the movie. There's no backstory. There's no nothing. It's like nowadays a critic might look at this movie in 2018 and be like, well, I don't know why Grant's here. Like, what is his motive? What is the prop? What is the motivation? Where does he come from? What was the really? What? Like, there's all this stuff to explore, but it's it's done so well. And this is why you cast the way you do is that you don't need any of the backstory to have you fall in love with these characters and enjoy these characters because they are what they are and they're all going for what they're going for and there's no time really there's no time to have any kind of conversation about like oh I remember when I was 10 years old and I first time I held a job there's none of that it's all just kind of presented it's because done from performance and yeah it's how it's set up and I think that's incredible the whole thing does take place over a pretty short period yeah. of time but it's yeah. also just I mean in any movie it's the art of exposition the right. the art of not having to rely on an exposition dump and having you learn this this information mm-hmm. supernaturally mm-hmm. not supernaturally but very naturally you right. know what I meant um 
Um, and that's exactly what they do here. I mean, yeah. that's what they do in a scene we just talked about where they're taking the ride over before they see their first dinosaur. Yeah. Is that conversation between the two of them, it doesn't feel like they're talking to you and saying, this this is our problem. This right. is what we have yeah. to do to solve it. You're just part of the creation of the park. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I, I kind of held off earlier. I want to talk about those dinosaurs and how mm. they did them. So they're, originally their plan was to do a combo of Stan Winston, who is one of the great mm-hmm. uh, effects, guy, practical effects guys, building puppets, and they were going to do stop motion, just like King mm-hmm. Kong, just like all those movies we've talked about. Um, and the person who's in charge of the stop motion is a guy named Phil Tibbet. And um, so Stan Winston starts building all these huge, huge puppets. And, and technology's come a long way since Jaws. And a lot of them are specially designed to do specific tasks. Yeah. So this one is going to be able to move this foot, and this one is going to be able to do this thing. This one is going to be able to breathe. Etc. And they look really, really cool. And they start looking at some tests of the stop motion. And the problem is all the things that we know, which is the motion is not smooth. They don't breathe. The textures are, are a problem. And while this is happening, Dennis Murin, who is at ILM, who's someone we've talked about before, says, hey, maybe we can do it with computers. And we've been talking about these guys multiple times on the Cinephiles. We first talked about them because the very first special effect they did is the Genesis Project oh, in Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan. And we just talked about them very recently because they did the T-1000 in Terminator 2. And that was in 91. And this is now 92, a year later. And they say, maybe we can do a dinosaur. They try to do a test. And in the test, they get basically a dinosaur running that's just a skeleton. And Spielberg looks at it, and it's moving smoothly. And he goes, huh, let's do the full test. So let's put some skin on that dinosaur. And they do. And they come back. And Spielberg's there. And Phil Tibbet, who's the stop motion guy who's been hired to do this thing, and they watch this dinosaur run, and Phil Tibbet says, I think I just became extinct. (laughs) Um, And it's got to be a crazy moment to see the profession that you've been working your whole life on disappear. Yeah. Oh, just like in the movie. Yeah, just (laughs) like in the movie. Good point. and uh, and so now they make the decision. Okay, we're not going to do a stop motion combo. We're going to do a combo of puppets and CGI, which has never ever been done before. And here's how I feel. Tibbet is very smart. Is he says, "Well, listen," because he's going to be fired. That's what he's thinking. <laughs> and he goes, "Listen, uh, we're not going to do it. We understand, but we have with my staff." Decades of experience of bringing animals to life through stop motion. So why don't we work with the CGI people? Because they don't have this experience of making natural movement and all this stuff. And so they become a partnership where that they start. And they even to the point where they design a puppet, which is acts as a computer interface so that they can, with each move of the puppet, that goes into the computer and becomes the movement of the, the CGI creatures. And I just think that's so brilliant. And it also reminded me of a film we talked about a few months ago, which is in The Incredibles, where you had the 2D animation people come from with uh, Brad Bird's team, come and work with the 3D animation people at Pixar, and they learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's really what happened, is that they became a teamwork that ended up making these dinosaurs more realistic and more interesting. Unprecedented. And it's vital to why the movie is still just as good today as it was way back then. Right. And that scene we just talked about that gives you chills and makes you cry. There's no way that scene works as powerfully without that technology being perfected the way it was uh, to make it seem believable as almost – Tan- like you can reach out and touch it. It's mm-hmm. that believable. I honestly think they still really hold up those effects. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Do. Absolutely. I, I really don't think there's 
there's really any flaws. I mean, I'm already seeing certain flaws in Jurassic World yeah. that just came out. And I mean, that's the that's the risk you run nowadays with only digital effects. Not that the entire movie was only digital. They did right. have some practical stuff on set. But when you create a creature purely digital, eventually that digital capability is going to become dated and you're going to start to see the cracks in it. And with this kind of stuff, that reach out and touch it feel, you you don't have it the same way. That's why I'm always, I have great respect for everybody who works on digital effects because mm-hmm. the VFX work that happens is absolutely incredible in some things. I love when you can actually utilize practical effects mm-hmm. right. to this kind of extent. Yeah. Um, so we ride up to the visitor center, and you could see that they studied Disney to do all this. Mm. Um, and John is on a spiel. This is the most advanced amusement park in the world, and it's, just, it's not just rides. And he kind of is talking about biological attractions and capturing the world's imagination. And Grant's been kind of quiet, and they ask, what are you thinking? And he says, we're out of a job. Don't you mean extinct? <laughs> and um, now we go into sort of a ride. <laughs> Our little Disney introduction to the science that made the park. And here, so here's my question. So we see a uh, a film John Hammond walk up. Hello. <laughs> hello. Say hello. Hello. Hello, John. Oh, yes. I brought lines. Oh, my God. The, and, the, yeah. <laughs> what? Well, just working in a theme park, you see films like that all the freaking time. Yeah. So seeing him, and it's it's really charming, though. He's like, oh, yes, I've got lines, and and he pricks them, and all mm-hmm. of that. It's really well done to convey a theme park so effectively, but also some of the most cringeworthy parts of a theme park as well. <laughs> they did it great. Yeah. Well, here's my question. The, the, the filmed John calls out to John. Yes. Was John Hammond going to be there yes. for every single ride? What, what, why did you doubt that? <laughs> it's John Hammond. That is so bizarre and impossible. Like he's then, gonna... then you have new uh, people dress up as John Hammond. Maybe oh, that's probably. what it is. Yeah, yeah. And here we get, again, a very fun way to do our exposition, which is a lot of exposition about dinosaur DNA and about mosquitoes trapped in amber and retrieving the blood and going to the lab. Um, and, of course, our main characters, uh, particularly Alan Grant, are going, well, wait, how do they solve this problem? How do they solve that problem? And 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 this this whole thing is they get uh, locked in by these bars because it's a it's a ride and they're they're moving and Alan wants to get off the thing again not comfortable with technology and finally he just forces that safety bar up and and, and Gennaro is just going can he do that you can't do that which really in a ride you really shouldn't be able to do that that's not a good plan and we you had even it. see the rocks move in the front when they lift the bar it's like you you could tell that it was like probably a foam rock or something <laughs> um, and we had into the lab and there we see a robot arm turning some dinosaur eggs and one of them is moving and a dinosaur is about to be born and in comes john hammond because he insists on being there when they are born yeah this is this thing where you kind of go i don't feel comfortable why don't Mm -hmm. this this guy is he's so warm and you know Fuzzy. It's coming from such a good place, too. It's not about, oh, I want them to imprint on me so I can train them all and be the Raptor King. Like, he genuinely just wants to be there to support these babies that he's funding. I don't know if I agree. I think think he does want to be there for that. But it's also, he makes this about him. There is a lot of making things about him. He is the guy that does the introduction. Mm -hmm. It is the, this is what I'm giving to you. He is not absent. It's not just altruistic. It is. All, he does want all that. I don't think he really understands the difference between the two. Well, that's that's, that's the point. Mm-hmm. That's a more yeah. 
It's a creepy moment. I'm sorry. If you guys like that moment, great. It, no, I think it's a creepy moment. It's too. a horror moment. It's like Alien again. Oh, like, the, the it, animal? Yeah, like from the, <laughs> the for original film. I always find it caught, you know, right oh, in the middle, between? like where it's the sweetest thing ever. And I think it's it's caught in between the two on everybody's face, too, where right. it's like, oh, look at this cute thing. Like, what is this? It's a velociraptor, you bred yeah. raptors, and you hear the terror in his voice. And <laughs> terror and wonder, because he's, yeah. that's his, he's been studying velociraptors, yeah. and this he's seeing one for real. Yeah. What? And it's the same reaction they had when he said he had a T-Rex. Like, yeah. You built a T-Rex? There's like, oh, you created a T-Rex, or you, and then you have that moment, and then you're like, oh, are they, are they freaked out? And then they're like, oh, wow, this is so... So that mix of wonder and terror at the same well, time. Well, that's that is this movie. Yeah, yeah. It's that Absolutely. mix of wonder Absolutely. and terror. You said it exactly it's right. It's the experience as a viewer, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, of course, Goldblum was going, well, well, okay, what about the ones that breed in the wild? Actually, they can't breed in the wild. Population control is one of our security precautions. There's no unauthorized breeding in Jurassic Park. Because they're all females. Yeah. You're going to go lift up all the dinosaur skirts? Because <laughs> yeah. No, they're engineered that way. Um, and, and then we get this speech from Goldblum, which I know I'm going to cut to. John, the kind of control you're attempting is uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free. It expands to new territories and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously. But, uh, well, there it is. It's a great speech mm-hmm. and a really important one mm-hmm. um, because essentially this movie is, you know, goes to the archetype of the very first science fiction story ever. This is Frankenstein. Yeah. This is the scientist who has created something that he cannot mm-hmm. control. Does he say it later on or is it now when he says, well, there was a reason these things became extinct? There's a, a couple natural of selection. speeches. Yeah, there are a couple yeah. of really good ones. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, the scientists are like, come on, you're suggesting a group of females will find a way to breed? And his response is, no, I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. <laughs> One of the most iconic quotes of this entire movie. <laughs> By the way, that is absolutely true. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea and, 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 you know, obviously, I don't think Jurassic Park is a political movie, but there are areas going on in our world where scientists are making decisions right now, particularly in terms of genetics, yeah. That we don't really understand the consequences of. Or robotics. Yes, I know that one too. Yes, Steve. Okay. AI is coming. Here. Did you see the dancing of dog or whatever it was? I, I sense like a long-term issue over AI right this, now. Like on top 10 and cinephiles. I, I, AI just... It's, it's too, coming for you, okay? Yeah, it is. <laughs> we're going to be, you know, all this stuff we're talking about. You better watch it. That phone that you just cracked the screen, it's yeah. going to attack you in the middle of the night. It will. <laughs> I, will be its, I will be its servant. It will be my overlord. <laughs> and, of course, the end of the scene is just as you were talking about the realization that they have velociraptors. And what do we cut to? The velociraptor paddock. <laughs> again, we are withholding the velociraptors. We're not mm-hmm. going to see them. We're seeing our characters look down. We see this bull lifted up, suspended over them, slowly lowered down, and then we hear them and we see the branches moving Another and their reactions. Great yeah. example of how important reaction shot- shots are Absolutely. in this movie because that's all you see. And then yeah. it's the genius move of showing those reaction shots through the rustling trees. So on top of seeing their terrified, disgusted faces, you also feel like you're semi in the right. cage with that poor steer that was just <laughs> Absolutely. demolished. Well, this is yeah. this is the lesson again from Jaws is that the terror that happens in our imagination is far more powerful than if you see it. Yeah. You know, if we imagine it, 
That's where it really gets into us. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, what they are actually acting to is Spielberg making noises of screams and yells. Yeah. That's what's actually going on. Apparently, he does a lot of that. He does a lot of directing through talking while people are doing actions on set. Wow. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, um, you wouldn't like that. Yeah, mm. No, um, I wouldn't. I bet if Spielberg cast you, you'd like it. Let's have a conversation. You would make sure <laughs> you like it. Yeah. Steven... <laughs> Steve, Steve. Oh, Please. can I call you Steve? Can I call you? Um, uh, and then we hear Muldoon's voice. This is the first time we've seen him since the beginning. And he says they should all be destroyed. Yeah. Not a good thing when your uh, your game warden says that. Yeah, why is he still the game warden if he thinks they should be destroyed? Well, I mean, you got a gig. I mean, have you ever been no, on a gig? No, but why is he still have him hired is what I'm saying. Why is John Hammond still hiring this guy if he thinks they should all be destroyed? destroyed. No, he handpicked him. Yeah. I, I think like a lot – I mean I think there are a lot of situations where people hire a great person because they're great and then do not listen to that person's advice. Yes, true. That happens well, in all sorts of Or it's the other way around where you could say why didn't he fire uh, Dennis Nedry? He can't. Oh, yeah. He, yeah he's well, basically the, he's the best of the best again and he's yeah. the only one who could run the entire thing. And, we, and now we hear a little bit more about what these Raptors are right. They're lethal at eight months. Their speed is cheetah speed or more, astonishing jumper, intelligence – Problem solving, especially the big one. We hear about this big one. We bred eight originally, but when she came in, she took over the pride and killed all but two of the others. That one, when she looks at you, you can see she's working things out. Yes. And then describes even they've been testing out the fences. I mean, this is this is really scary. And you kind of go again, why is Hammond not destroying them? Right. And the answer is because he has this belief. And that belief is really, really dangerous. It's actually interesting now that I'm thinking about it, applying that belief to the events of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Like, I haven't oh, seen it, yeah. So. yeah I, I don't think I ever really uh, connected the dots there yeah. quite as much, but yeah. yeah. Is that oh, what's well. going on in that movie? Or? A little a little bit. The the island, because of the volcano, is at risk. Mm-hmm. So it's about, do we save the dinosaurs and get them off, or do we let them perish? Right. Oh, that's an interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and of course, as they're all a little bit, dis- and we see, by the way, the rig that was used to lower the bull come out, and we could see kind of the disgusted, somewhat nauseous faces after watching this, you know, carnage. And Hammond says, "Yes, <laughs> who's hungry?" And we go off to a very elegant, elegant meal. Again, we've spared no expense, <laughs> and we're talking about merchandise, and we're talking about. Uh, you know, profits and Hammond's going, no, but we don't want to cater to the super rich. And he's like, oh, we'll have coupon day. What a magnanimous person uh, John is. <laughs> Absolutely. I, well, he thinks he is. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. And Malcolm kind of watching all this. Says, I love this. This is yeah. this is me in the room. What Malcolm does, that's I, like, what he's, I'm not saying I'm as smooth or charming as Jeff, but that's, You're very my, smooth. that's my thought. If that's my thought process, everything he says I'm that person in the room going, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, what about this, this, and this? And I think it's fantastic what he says throughout this whole scene. Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Yes! Nature is destructive. And, and at this point, the lawyer signed on because he's like, we're going to make so much money. And so mm-hmm. he's like, oh, no, things are really different than we expected. And yeah. Malcolm's response is, yeah, they're a lot worse. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent? Uh, in what you're doing here, genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. Yeah, man. and th- Great lines. Yeah, and this speech I love, because I think this is really, really smart, which is... I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. 
you know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Banging on the table as he does this? Um, I, I think this is such a great point because you can build on the science of the past. So, so Archimedes struggles with buoyancy and he figures it out and we don't have to do that struggle anymore because that's already done. Einstein struggles with general relativity and theories on gravity and we don't have to do that anymore. We start from where they stopped. And so our science is extremely advanced, but everybody has to learn wisdom on their own. Mm -hmm. And so our wisdom goes way more slowly. We all start as idiots and learn it slowly. So you can be armed with all this tremendous science and not have the wisdom of how to yield, wield it. Mm-hmm. it is a, I think that is a fantastic, great speech. What enhances it even more is when he's giving that speech, you're basically in like this oval of marketing too. It's yeah. like he's saying all these things that you shouldn't be doing and all those things, like to the extent that you have Jurassic tennis being yep. promoted over there, yeah. everything is, you are consumed by it. I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And, and Hammond's argument is, well, what if we wanted to save the condors and bring them back? And, and Malcolm's like, no, the dinosaurs were already selected out. Yep. Um, and then he has this thing, he's like, how, you know, they ask, how is a, a scientist so anti-science? And <laughs> this is, again, pure Goldblum. Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that... Scars what explores what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. Mm-hmm. Rape of the natural world. That might be a little farther <laughs> than I would go. Yeah, well. But Ellie's with him, you mm-hmm. know, because she says, how can we know anything about an extinct ecosystem? How can you be so confident you can control it? Because yeah. she's already seen. They picked poisonous plants because they thought they looked good. But these are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. This is not going the way John Hammond expected it to. <laughs> and he turns to Grant, expecting that Grant, the, the biggest lover of dinosaurs here, is going to be on his side, and Grant's not either. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Thank God for the blood-sucking lawyer. It's <laughs> yeah, a great point. Um, and I think about this too. I this is again. I don't want to be political about this, but the there has been an incredibly rapid change in technology in terms of cell phones and social media that have completely shifted the way we deal with politics and interaction and how humans relate to each other and how children are raised and levels of empathy. And this technology has happened in the last decade, and we do not know how to deal with it. And it is changing us in ways we don't understand, and a lot of them very destructive. And I think that is exactly what we're talking about is science moving forward because they can and not asking about whether or not they should. And we're all running to catch up every single step of the way. You get the new thing and you got to learn in the split second what that new uh, iOS update is going to bring into your life, whether you like it or not. Yep. Um, And then we find out they're here. (laughs) Time to introduce us to Timmy and Lexi, our grandkids. Yeah. Um, it's a great – I think there are a couple of brilliant changes from the book that happen here. One is that they make Lexi the computer character, yeah. which is really, really smart. And I think they switch the ages from the book, I think. Um, and the other one's coming up because we're about to start our Jeep tour. 
and <laughs> and we see that these jeeps run on tracks and again he says we've spared no expense and tim is obsessed with dr grant yeah because he loves dinosaurs mm-hmm. is dr grant into tim no, no, not keeps, so much. He keeps changing uh, cars that, that he's going to ride. That is a brilliantly blocked scene right? too, and yeah. the way they capture it all as you're kind of like weaving in and out of the cars. Oh, I love it. Yeah, and this is classic, perfect Spielberg because my memory is that in the book, Doctor Grant likes kids, mm. and in the movie, he doesn't like kids. Right. That is that is so clear it makes such clear storytelling of what is the journey of this character from beginning to end and a character who doesn't like kids has conflict and contrast as opposed to one who does it's so key to his journey in the film too exactly. it basically enhances his whole arc in the movie too yeah. uh, and, and of course just as they're getting in then the girl comes back lexi and she says she said i should ride with you because it'd be good for you <laughs> so now he's got both kids. <laughs> Up in the computer room, we get to re- meet Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, man. My favorite. <laughs> he's great in this movie. I mean, he's, he was so, this era of him sort of arriving between mm-hmm. Jungle Fever and all these little parts he's showing up with, he's always so great. And he's great in this one. Goodfellas. Um, <laughs> Goodfellas. Yeah, small yeah. part in that too, around yeah. this time. And it's and it's two, It's another two years before Pulp Fiction. It's right. coming soon. Yeah. Um, he's chain smoking and he's working and... And Hammond is watching them on the monitors. And again, this is great Spielberg storytelling as the tour starts. And everyone's excited. Um, Grant's response is, God help me, we're in the hands of engineers. (laughs) And we hear a voice talking to them. And the gates open as we hear, welcome to Jurassic Park. Welcome to Jurassic Park. What do they got in there, King Kong? That's, by the way, Richard Kiley's voice. Spare no expense. Spare, Spare no, no expense. expense. What what a shout out they gave him. It's such a weird thing in the movie. <laughs> we got Richard Kiley. And it was like, how many people in the audience were like, oh, they got Richard Kiley? Definitely like, no. not six year old me. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You weren't a big Richard Kiley fan? <laughs> That's something that's Are so you now? Uh, well, I'm aware now because of the movie. I'm aware of who he is because of the movie. I also tried sea bass because of this movie. I never uh, liked it, but I tried it because of this movie. It's not my favorite fish. Yeah, nope. it's not mine either. I have a lot of fish I like more than sea bass. Yeah. Um, but we digress. <laughs> On the tour, we're going to go see these dinosaurs that are called Diophosaurus, and we see a sign about them, and everyone's really excited to see them. They're not there. Nope. <laughs> Back in the lab, Sam Jackson is knocking down some glitches, and now we finally see Dennis. It has worked, and as you say, his nasty workstation, and he's you know automating all this sorts of codes, and he is complaining and bitching, and it's very clear, John Hammond does not like this guy. Yeah. Um, apparently, there's some financial problems or something. Um, always financial problems. Yeah. <laughs> and Dennis's financial problems are always Hammond's financial problems. Yeah. Yeah. You think he's a nephew? He's a what? He's the nephew of Hammond. Oh, a nephew? No. No. No, I don't <laughs> think so. so. Why would he keep bailing him out? Because he seems like the one guy who can handle all this code. Well, I mean, Nedry does have the capabilities and the talent and the skill to be able to manipulate Hammond for more money. I mean, he he says he is the he's like the one man band of this whole operation. Yeah. If, and it's proven, too. If you take him out of the equation, they can't fix it themselves. So basically, Nedry can consistently ask Hammond for more money. Well, and this is also a sign that actually Hammond is not building a park that makes sense. I mean, even even if you take away the things that go wrong yeah. in this particular thing, it's like everything can't be dependent upon one guy that nobody else understands what they did in a, in a huge amusement park. Right. That is not how this can work. 
And in the lab, we hear, oh, they're approaching the Tyrannosaurus paddock. And we end up at the T-Rex paddock, and the Jeep slows down in front of a fence, and everyone is really excited, and they're looking out the window. And again, we see that 10,000 volts sign on the big fence, and there's flashing lights. And then Malcolm says, God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. <laughs> to which Ellie's response is, Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. <laughs> a, right on point. A great yeah. look from Alan and Ian. And then a goat rises up from the ground. It's it's bleeding. And now we kind of realize, oh, the T-Rex is going to come and eat the goat. And everyone's getting excited. And Poor Lex, she's a vegetarian. You can't eat the goat. No, she's yeah. upset about it. And Alan's kind of going, look, the T-Rex is going to want to hunt. It doesn't want to just have this serve to it. Right. And then nothing happens. The goat lays down. Everyone is really sad. And we don't get to see the T-Rex. Again, we withhold the animals. Do no shows. Yeah. And I love Hammond on the watching on the monitors and Malcolm like gets right up in that camera. It's like, it's supposed to be dinosaurs <laughs> yeah. in your park. Such a great move. I really hate that man. That's such a great line. <laughs> it's all these like teeny tiny things that you don't think really click in your head. And it's just when you watch this movie over and over, you start to memorize the inflection. Yeah. Like I've hit the point with Jurassic Park where whether it's the way a line of dialogue is delivered or even the way one of the dinosaurs roars or makes any noise for that matter, I know those sound effects so well that when I hear them in other movies or TV shows, it completely right. takes me out of it. Right. And they do that. They do that often, oh, actually. Yeah, they, they definitely will use them in other places. And one of the things that I think one of the misconceptions about great movies is people think that, oh, great movies are because someone had a great idea. And that's not what it is. Mm. Great movies are thousands and mm. thousands of little great ideas. Yeah. And this movie is a perfect example of it. There's so many little tiny moments that are great that build up to make this whole movie great. Um, uh, we're back on the tour, and now Malcolm starts talking about chaos yeah. and chaos theory. And first, he's describing the butterfly effect, and he's he's talking to Sadler about it. And there's this really weird moment as he's talking to her that he's kind of touching her hair. Yeah. It is so odd. <laughs> it's and, invasive. Yes. Now, I can't remember. Is is Alan in this same oh, team with he, them? he's with them. That's yeah. what I thought. So this dude is all over your girlfriend. And and explaining chaos theory by dripping water on her hand, which yep. he is holding, yep. and speaking very softly and closely to her. Yep. What's he doing? He was looking out the window to catch <laughs> the, the triceratops because I right. think he even goes, Alan, Alan, do you hear this? Are you looking at this? Right. And he wasn't quite paying attention. Right. He's Well, we know where his priorities are. <laughs> and, of course, he sees the uh, triceratops and what does he do? Gets out of the car. Yeah. You really shouldn't be able to get off a car on a ride, <laughs> particularly a ride around dinosaurs. I think they they uh, Muldoon says it. He said, uh, "I said we should have had locking mechanisms on the vehicle oh, doors." Yeah. Yep. yeah. And while this is happening, Dennis has some uh, some cameras on some kind of a frozen locker or something, and on a boat. Yeah. And we know we're getting close to that time, and they walk up to a Triceratops. So this one is a full puppet. It's eight guys that control it. They're breathing. They're controlling the eye movement, controlling the tongue. That seems really, really well done. When he 
lays on yes. that triceratops. Oh, yeah. That is another chill-inducing moment. Every single time I see it, it's like I could feel the triceratops yep. skin under his hands for the first time. Hmm. Well, and, and it's so funny because I'm sure when you were on the set and the puppeteers stopped moving that thing, it's just a completely dead object. And yet the performances make it a totally living thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that triceratops is sick. Uh, and the sound design, by the way, is really mm -hmm. good for mm -hmm. this too. Um, and they're trying to figure out what it is. Is it a local plant? Is it, you know, and, and we see again now the scientists of Ellie Sadler and what she's involved with because she really wants to figure this out. And the big thing's like, you know what I would need to see is some droppings. Do I know droppings? Droppings? <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. um, back in the control room, I don't think I mentioned there's a big, huge storm coming. Yeah, I was going to mention that, that they, if they had that scene earlier. Yeah, yeah we, we, and, the, and the storm is still coming and it's not weakening. It hasn't changed course. Does it happen in the book? Is there a storm in the book? Mm -hmm. Okay. There and and this scene is intercut with the triceratops scene. Oh, okay. so, in the book? Yeah. No, no, in the in the movie. Yeah, right. Yeah, they yeah. cut back and forth right. between the two. Right. And now they're making the decision, we have to end the tour. You know, because the right. risk is too big with this storm coming in. And you see John Hammond is not happy about mm -hmm. this. He wants to let the tour keep going. And the other thing they're saying is that we're going to have a shuttle and um, all the staff is going to be leaving off on some boat. And then we cut to what I can only describe as a very big pile of shit. That is one big pile of shit. <laughs> and Ellie's got her. She's literally uh, upper arm deep yeah. in mm -hmm. this big. Those are some long gloves she's got. <laughs> that also has one of my favorite lines of the entire movie. So my entire family loves Jurassic Park. We watch it over and over and over again. And we repeat many lines. But I think the line that we repeat more than any other is when Malcolm goes to her better wash your hands before you eat anything every single time one of us like is ready to eat something and does something we always say that there's another great moment too where malcolm says to grant she's tenacious and his response is you have no idea <laughs> here's something i think about their about alan and ellie's relationship is i think he's really confident in their relationship oh yes of course he is. i mean i think he is distracted sometimes and i think he isn't always paint but he like he knows her in a deep yeah. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think, like Perry said, where his priorities are is his archaeology. That's where his real, like, 100% love and attention is, is what he does for a career and for his job. So Ellie doing her own thing, he's fine with because yeah. he, he's not super obsessed with, you know, being possessive about her. He's got other things that he focuses on. And she, he knows she can handle herself. And she does throughout this whole movie, Laura. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Like, this is 1993, right? In 2018, we're still not going like, okay, these women lead these films, blah, blah, blah. Throughout the whole film, she is a super feminist. And we'll find that later on when she has that, like, back, quick back and forth with, uh, with him. Oh, yeah. and, and she's saying, like, we'll discuss the gender politics or whatever. And I love that. Every moment. And it's not overt. It's not pushed. It's Steven Spielberg. He loves and respects female characters in a lot of his movies. And in these, in a lot of these things with Laura Dern throughout the movie, you see that. Well, part of it is just the casting of Laura Dern. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. she's got so much strength to her. Yep. Um, Dennis is loading up some kind of application. The word execute comes in. The storm is coming in. Then, sure, the lawyer, the lawyer guy, Gennaro, is starting to get a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. And we're calling back the tour. And Sadler says, no, I want to stay with the Triceratops and stay with the doctor. He's got his own Jeep, so that's not going to be a problem. They all agree. We can start to get some lightning flashes. We see some big waves coming in. Mm. I think, but I'm not sure that that was actually shot in the hurricane, in Hurricane Indy. Mm. I also believe that the doctor she stays with is one of the producers on the film. He, he is one of the producers. Ah. Yeah, his name is Gary someone, but Jerry uh, someone, but I missed his name. Jared Mullen? Mo yeah, something like mm. that. 
now it's about time. Dennis has got to go. So he he calls down to the boat and they say, we're leaving right now. And he begs them for 15 minutes. And he says he knows he could do it in 20. Maybe he could do it in 18. And the tour is coming back and Hammond is upset. And they're, they're kind of going, look, this could have been a lot worse. This could have been really bad. Um, and Dennis comes out and is like, anybody want a, a soda or something? Because uh, I'm, I'm going up the machine. I thought maybe, you know, I, I'd get somebody something. Because I've had all these sweets and I think I'm going to get something salty. I thought maybe somebody would and he is nervous and awkward <laughs> and says, there's some, th- I've got to do something with the system that's going to reboot. There's some minor <laughs> systems going in and out. No big deal. And he hits execute and he heads off, sets a timer, and he's gone. Mm. Um, and we're back in the Jeeps and it's raining. And, and Grant asks about uh, Malcolm if he has kids. And he says, three. What? That was such a, I remember, like, it's so random. I don't remember that he has kids. Yeah. And isn't there in he's Jurassic? Got, yeah, he's got a kid in uh, Jurassic uh, uh, in Lost, Lost World. World. Right, yeah, yeah. She's a gymnast, right, or something like that? She is a gymnast. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> that leads to probably that is uh, one, of, my, the one worst. of the most divisive scenes yeah. in the entire movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, still rem- I still remember seeing it and going, yeah. oh, well, that's a plant. You know, like uh, right at the beginning of the movie. She, okay. but when they when they actually discuss that at the beginning of the movie, um, I, I her name is uh, escaping me right now. But that conversation between the two of them does feel like a really natural, organic father daughter mm. conversation. No, it's it's uh, again. I saw the movie twenty years ago and ha- I haven't seen it since. But I just remember the oh, we see her doing a bunch of gymnastics. That's going to come in handy. It's at some a heavy-handed, uh, ridiculous way. It does come yeah. Yeah. in handy uh, later on. <laughs> um, I do love Malkin's line where, where uh, uh, Alan asks, are you married? And he says, occasionally. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for a future ex-Mrs. Malkin. Yeah. Um, that's great. Dennis is at an airlock. He opens... Uh, Waits on a timer, doors open. Uh, Sam Jackson is smoking his cigarettes and looking at all the security systems shutting down. Hold on to your butts. And at first it's sort of, oh, well, Dennis said something like this was going to happen. But it seems to me when you have giant predators that, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of should be really careful about. It's just the door security systems (laughs) at first. It doesn't become problematic until the fences start going out. Then that's when all their red flags go up. (laughs) And uh, uh, Dennis gets his shaving cream can. He starts loading it up with T-Rex DNA and Velociraptor and Stegosauruses and all of them. Closes them back up. And then we get to this moment you mentioned before, which is Ian Malcolm asks, is Ellie available? Um, and Alan's response is interesting. Why? Why are you asking this question? Yeah. As if he hasn't noticed him flirting with her shamelessly since we first met. And then the Jeeps stopped. Hey, what'd that touch? Uh, we didn't touch anything. We stopped. And they look up at the fences and the fences are going unarmed. They're failing all over the park. We are finally getting, this has been a long time, yeah. we are yeah. finally getting to the action part of this movie. Yeah, Dennis is in a Jeep, <laughs> driving towards a gate, it, t- it switches the manual override, and now why we see how why the, the power had to be off, because he's got to go through an electrified gate. Mm-hmm. And back in our control lab, Sam Jackson, who's, I think Mr. Arnold, is starting to go, wait, why are these things going off? Things are starting to not look so good. And uh, Arnold's trying to, you know, access the main program and get things turned back on. And he gets this permission denied and then say the magic word. And then that animated Dennis Nedry <laughs> laughing at him. God damn it. I hate this hacker crap. <laughs> and the phones are out. 
And now we start to wonder, where did the vehicle stop? Yeah. And we cut to the goat. <laughs> There's a certain kind of cut that Spielberg does. He does it throughout this film, which is, so, which is that we pose a question on the A side of the cut. And we answer the question with the B side. Where are the Jeeps uh, stopped? Cut to the goat. And it's such a beautiful, perfect bit of storytelling, which is like, oh. And, of course, it comes with a big, oh, shit. And Alan has gone to check on the other Jeep, and he comes back to Malcolm, who asks, are the kids okay? And he goes, well, I I didn't ask. Why wouldn't they be okay? (laughs) He's so clueless. It's like, kids get scared. (laughs) Um, But Tim's having a great time. He's found the night vision goggles. The lawyer's a little like, put those down. Those look expensive. (laughs) Um, And he's looking around. And then we hear the first thump. Uh, sound designer is Gary Reitstrom, who we just talked about with Terminator 2. He's one of the great sound designers of all time. Those thumps are redwood trees falling. Huh. They are big. Interesting. There's a couple of interesting sound choices there's that some, come up. There's some great <laughs> ones. And then we hear another thump. And Tim hears it, and the sister hears it. And then we see hear a thump, and we see a ripple and a glass yeah. of water. Yeah. Talk about great details in a film. Um, So apparently Spielberg got this idea when he was listening to Earth, Wind & Fire while driving in his car and saw his reflection move in the rearview mirror. Mm. And that gave him both the idea for the rearview mirror shot, which is going to happen later, and this vibration in the glass of water. And he said, this is what I want. And it goes to the effects team. They could not figure out how to make it happen. It is apparently really, really hard. They tried everything. They banged hammers, rang bells, knocked wood together, and nothing. Because what it wasn't just they could make the water vibrate, but making that perfect concentric mm-hmm. circles mm-hmm. was really, really hard. Spielberg calls them like the night before the shoot. It's like you got that water thing figured out, and they go, "Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, it'd be great." They don't, they don't have it. Um, and finally, they found one particular note played on a guitar, and that is what did this. <laughs> Son of so a random, God. yeah, wow. yeah. I love that detail. I can only imagine like running through the prop warehouse going like, what are we going to try? What do we try? Yeah. Let me try G. That's oh. what it was. I mean, that's sometimes what the job. Yeah. Filmmaking is weird job sometimes. Yeah, it is. How do I make a glass of water vibrate with perfect ripple circles? It doesn't seem like it'd be that difficult to know what it is. <laughs> we'll, we'll test it out. Let's see. Let's see how quickly you figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm more worried about the jello moving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the lawyer starting to. Notice those big thumpy sounds? He looks up in the mirror, and then we see that same shake that Spielberg saw with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. I wonder if got to I wonder get you into song. my life. Yeah. What, 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 what song it was? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and his lawyer's kind of going, well, maybe it's the power trying to come back yeah, on. Sure. <laughs> and Tim looks over at the night with his night vision goggles. The goat is gone. Yeah. And then we're in a low angle shot. We see the kids in the foreground. We see the glass sunroof in the background. And then Lexi says, Man, that goat hitting that piece of meat and blood hitting that glass. Even before, and and then I think after, actually, you get to see the little T Rex fingers like picking at the the fence. That's right oh, after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You see that. After. I love. That's yeah. like one of my favorite, one of my yep. most random favorite shots in the movie. And then we see finally our first real view of the T Rex as it swallows the goat. Yeah. That is an, a good shot. An hour and three minutes into the film. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that's a big, you know, that's why like that whole, that's an hour of just a movie about opening this park and all the relationships yeah. and the science and it takes us an, can you imagine a movie today spending an hour before it got to its first action sequence? I wish more movies would keep that in mind because another part of the reason why the spectacle is so incredible is because they had the foundation to yep. wow you when yeah. it actually yeah. happened. It just seems like so many movies nowadays are just throwing everything they can at you right from the start and it just winds up being meaningless. One of the best lessons I ever learned in film school was in a sound design class. And what the teacher said uh, was, in order to have loudness, we must have silence. Yeah. And that applies in so many things that spectacle only happens with contrast. Mm -hmm. Is that if you just have spectacle, 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 everything becomes nothing, even if it's the most impressive stuff in the world. Yeah. But if you withhold, withhold the T-Rex, that T-Rex is going to have impact when we see it. And this definitely does. I feel like that was Perry shot at the Transformers movies. I'm going to let it go. <laughs> I'm going to let it go. You're the one who said it. It actually didn't even cross my mind. But yeah, that's a great example. <laughs> but I will say, it doesn't always work the other way either, because Batman versus Superman, there's like 45 minutes before there's an action sequence sometimes. And so it all depends on the sort well, of filmmaker. Well, the other stuff has to be good. Well, there it is. There it is. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it depends on the filmmaker and the movie. Yeah, but it's worked so effectively here. It's so positively effectively here. This is sequence scary. is my favorite sequence it's in so the believable. entire movie. It is so it is this believable. Was, this was the point in the movie where, like, I was super into it before we even got here but this is where that that switch kind of flipped and all of a sudden my brain started processing how much i admire and value and how happy i am to have movie magic quite like this it's so perfectly constructed mm -hmm. and the mix of the way the effects work the practical effects the cg effects the reactions of all the people the shot selection the camera work it's all just done so almost well. perfectly constructed there is one minor Ooh. flaw in this whole sequence Okay. So I'm getting to the end of it a little, but you know how the car and eventually the people go over the edge? Yes. Yeah. The T-Rex should not, should be, you know, kind of at eye level, but the T-Rex is oh. on level ground with the cars. Right. Which mm. is, it makes no sense, but you don't I, really I have think, to look at it again. You don't really think about it unless I guess you're sitting there and analyzing yeah. it because it wasn't on, I don't even know how many watches until I'm like, wait, like how is the T-Rex right there? But then the car falls over the edge. Mm. That's a great point. Mm. Um, the uh, lawyer sees the T-Rex, and he bolts. He definitely chooses the better part of Valor. Yeah. Uh, and Lexi's response is... He left us. Oh. He left us. I have a feeling that Lexi will have abandonment issues for the rest I of her life. I think so. Right? Think, yeah. Oh, poor Lex. <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. Um, he runs into a toilet stall. And then we get another really great line. When you gotta go, you gotta Big go. When you gotta go, you that's gotta another go. one I say well, all the time. Yeah. They haven't quite seen the T Rex yet. They don't really know what's happening. And then it comes through the fence, and we get that roar. Boy, my head being right all the time. One other thing that's interesting about the scene is that it wasn't supposed to be raining. Mm hmm. Mm. Spielberg added that at the last minute. Problem is, Stan Winston had not designed these puppets for the rain. Oh, shit. And the skin was absorbent. So it got heavier and heavier. Oh, Jesus. It was like, you know, it was like kind of sponge material mm -hmm. for the skin. And they're really precisely calibrated motors for weight. And so suddenly the T-Rex is hundreds of pounds heavier right. than they thought. And it kept breaking down. So they had to keep drying it off and shoot, shoot, shoot Jesus. until it got too heavy and wouldn't run anymore and then dry it off. Yeah. <laughs> it makes things a lot harder. And at first, Alan says, keep 
absolutely still. Suspicion's based on movement. And what's the next thing we see? That flashlight. Why is why Hi. why is Timmy grabbing the flashlight? Lex Le- Lexi's, oh, Lexi's yeah. got the flashlight. I mean, oh what? right, right. You're you're a kid in the dark with a monster. What would you do if I guess you had a good flashlight? Point. You right. would turn it. Plus, she doesn't know. Yeah, it's, it's Tim that knows the dinos, not right. her. Right. Well, and and you know the T Rex bumps the jeep, and man, that is a really powerful flashlight. Yeah, that is, that thing's kind of amazing. And they they are trying to get the flashlight off. And then, turn the light off. And then Tim pulls that door closed. <laughs> And now the T-Rex is sure something's going on in this Jeep. Um, and I love that. Again, it's all these little details. T-Rex's head pops up in the glass. The flashlight hits its eye and the pupil dilates. Mm. That is so cool. Such a brilliant little detail. This has tested surround sound systems for a long time. You go to that stereo dealership, and they play this roar. Uh, The sound design is amazing. Yeah. Uh, It is apparently a combined roar of a crocodile, a lion, and a baby elephant. Mm. Crocodile for the low end, the lion for the attack of the sound, and the baby elephant is the high end. Yeah. Again, this is Gary Wrightstrom's genius. And how much time he spent to figure out this combination of making this sound just like this is remarkable. And they start screaming, and the T-Rex comes down through that sunroof. I don't know how they're alive. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of power coming at that they're holding off. The shots, of course, are great with that POV up towards the T-Rex, and the T-Rex's POV coming down towards them. And at this moment, Grant and Malcolm, they're just watching, (laughs) steaming up What would you do? Well, it's a lot to take in. Yeah, you got to mount the T Rex, try to stop it. Like, there's nothing you that, can do. But that's usually that my move. And it's so <laughs> apparent on Grant's face too, because like we keep talking yeah. about how he's, you know, he's just laser focused on whatever he's looking at yeah. with, in relation to the dinosaurs. And at this moment, it's like his face reeks of pure terror. Like, what is happening right, right. now? And but he grabs a flare. The T-Rex is pushing that Jeep around, which, again, is this mix of puppet effects, practical Mm. effects with the Jeep, the movement of the mud. This one, by the way, turning the Jeep doesn't quite work perfectly for me, but it's still really cool. Mm. That scene where – that shot where you see uh, the two of them sinking into Mm. the mud, too, that's that's another really great effect where you feel like – you could feel the mud. You could feel that being soaked into their clothes, and your heart breaks for them. And Grant lights that flare, calls to the T-Rex. The T-Rex turns, looks right at him, and he throws that flare, and the T-Rex starts running in the forest, and we go like, cool, yeah! You've done it, Grant! Phew. No, no, Mr. Fucking Chaos Theory has to pull out his flare, because God forbid he not be the hero of the situation. So this was added later. So this is um, this <laughs> is Jeff Goldblum's was. idea. Of course it was. And, and well, because when the the <laughs> Chaos Theory scientist became kind of more of a rock star, yeah. he had to become more heroic. And so, and yeah, it's still kind of stupid. He, massively um, so. And he draws the T-Rex away. The T-Rex charges him. Malcolm says, get the kids. He throws the flare, runs towards the bathroom, which totally collapses, injures him, exposing our friend on the toilet. Yeah. And that is it for him. Yeah. Goodbye. Aww. Bye-bye, guy. Um, yeah. Poor Gennaro. He didn't yeah. If you're, if you're going to go, that's how you go in a movie, though. Yeah. <laughs>
I can see it. That's Elvis style. Go. Well, on I the mean, toilet. what would you do? You're like caught. You're caught on a toilet, and all he's he's witnessing no, the T Rex looking nothing, at him, yeah, and dude. he's like busy, like wiping the water yeah. off his face. I love the fact they put the toilet by the T Rex place because you know people are gonna lose their shit. That's, <laughs> that's great. That just makes the most sense. That right? is a great, great point. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there's a good set of survival skills for T Rex. Yeah. Although Grant tells he gets to Lexi, pulls her out of the car, and says, "Don't move. Don't move. Can't see us if we don't move." They freeze. Yeah. The T-Rex gets close, breathes, blows Grant's hat off, um, and then pushes the Jeep, which they hide behind as it spins. This is all, all this buildup of drama and tension in this moment. It's just so brilliant. It's a, Every little detail mm-hmm. is such mm-hmm. a great... And it's believable. Yep. Yeah. Um, and they're now right at the edge of this wall. And, you know, what, what are our choices here exactly? And finally, he he grabs a cable and starts heading down the wall, and she climbs on his back and is pretty much choking him. Um, And they see another line, and what do they look up? And there's that jeep. It's about to come down at them. And we got to get that other line because we got to get out of the way. And we start swinging. And again, this is the perfect Spielbergness of this moment is just as they grab that line, that jeep goes by right past them. There's a great, great looking stunt and effect. back in our control room Samuel Jackson is getting into what Dennis did and finally goes we're going to have to go through every single line of code how many lines of code are there about two main two million yeah Mm. and then John Hammond turns to Robert Muldoon and says Robert I I wonder if perhaps you would be good enough to take a gas jeep and bring back my grandchildren now he cares Mm-hmm. I mean, he always cared about them, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's the lack of um, culpability. Well, there's a lack of that throughout the whole franchise. I'll be honest. Oh, boy. Here we go. Jurassic World. We're going through divorce. We're going to fawn off our kids on Jessica Ch- uh, or uh, on uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Right. And then Bryce Dallas Howard is going to fawn them off on her assistant. Well, it's actually uh, that's that mirrors what happens in this movie, because yeah. at the beginning at the mines, you hear someone say, oh, uh, uh, Heaven's he not see, there yeah. because his daughter's going through a divorce. R- so oh. assuming that 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 is his only daughter and it's Lex and Tim's parents, it's there's a whole lot of mirroring happening here to yeah. the point that you also have a very similar scene in uh, Jurassic World with the uh, the window being pushed yes. down, but it's the gyrosphere instead. Right. Right. Well, this is like if if you feel that in order to have your franchise, you must reproduce exactly stuff that happened in previous films. You are having a problem, and you are not being creative enough. There's good examples and bad examples of that. I I, I, I agree. I applaud the way it's done in Force Awakens. I thought that was very effective yes. and a great Agreed. way to honor the original, but also usher in new fans. Agreed. Yes, I agree with that. That, that. It's a good point. But if it's just replicating things, oh, people like it when the, we do this. Let's do that again. Right. It's no good. And uh, so uh, Muldoon says, sure, and... Sadler decides that she's going with him, and we have some adventurous mm-hmm. music. And then we hear the last thing we hear is Arnold says, John, I can't get Jurassic Park back online without Dennis Nedry. So, we already talked about some of the similarities between Jurassic Park and Jaws the scary opening, not letting you see the T Rex and Velociraptors, but this is the biggest one. Both films have a major shift in tone about halfway through. In Jaws, the first half is about Brody trying to close the beaches, while the first half of Jurassic Park is about Hammond fighting to open his park. 
For Jaws, everything changes at one hour and 10 minutes into the film when Brody, Hooper, and Quint board the orca to hunt the shark. In Jurassic Park, everything changes when Hammond asks Muldoon to bring back his grandchildren. How far are we into the movie at that point? Exactly one hour and 10 minutes. Crazy, right? From this point forward, this movie is no longer an intellectual conversation about evolution, consumerism, and safety. It's a fight for survival. And we are going to jump right into that fight when The Cinephiles returns next week for part two of Jurassic Park. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.